So in this series, we are starting this morning our series on good intentions, bad theology. Uh, there are so many names that have popped up to me of things that we could have called this series. God-isms, okay? But my favorite is this. I'm pretty sure that we should have called this series Exercising Demons, as in getting Satan out of the way that we think about God. I'm pretty sure that that would have been my favorite one, because what we're talking about here is this. We have these broken concepts of who God is, and these are the things that are kind of seeping into us, into our lives, into the world. Now, for us to understand the importance of isms, we have to understand this. What you think, what you believe, the way that, that you really think things work, the way that you think, um, how you put how this, what you think is real is what dictates the way that you act. So, we'll say this. What you think controls what you do. What you think controls what you do. Agreed? Okay. Simple concept, right? The way that I think about something is going to transition the way that I treat it, okay? And so what happens here is that with God, what we have to understand is that the way that we think about God is what dictates the way we interact with God. The way that I view my wife is going to affect the way that I talk to my wife. If I have something hard and scary and vulnerable to share with her, but I am so convinced that if I do, she's going to take it awful, it's going to go bad, and it's just all sorts of bad things is going to come from it. Will I talk to her? And all the men go, absolutely not. So what happens is that most of us, we all have these very different images of God. We, we, we broke into this a little bit with our series on uh, the imaginary God. We all have concepts of who God is. And for you, God is who you think he is. Yes, he is who he is outside of you, right? But the way you will engage him is completely dictated on who you think that person is. For example, have you ever heard of someone and you heard the worst things about them? Just whoever. Okay, just think of the name. And you heard, oh, that person's such a jerk, and they're just so rude, and they're full of themselves. And when you met them, how did you treat them? You had never had any contact with this person in your life. But the moment you saw them, you already treated them as if you had all this experience with them. Because to you, they were a jerk. And now that you expect them to be a jerk, what do you see everything they do as? You interpret it as being rude to you. Right? There are many jerks in this world. I've been one of them, and sometimes I am. Some of the biggest jerks in this world are introverts. Introverts, would you raise your hand? I'm going to say something for you because you wouldn't say it yourself. You're an introvert. Most of you are jerks because you don't like your uncomfortable being in public. She just thinks she's too good to talk to me. No, she's shy. <laughs> right? Okay, that person's so full of themselves. No, they're insecure. Are you starting to see how this works? But it doesn't matter what what's actually real to you. What matters is what you perceive to be real. Have you guys ever heard the concept, um, perception is reality? Yes? Okay. What if I were to tell you the Razorbacks just need one week to tweak two things, and they're going to be awesome? Awesome! Could I convince you of that? No, because in your mind, you perceive that this ship is going one place. This dumpster fire has already been lit, and there's no going back. It doesn't matter who he brings in. I mean, Belamo could hire Saban 
as his assistant. And it's not going to fix anything for you. No, Balaam has to get out. Out of the office, off the field, out of Arkansas. Get him out. And to you, the moment he leaves the state, things are better. Is that reality? No, but that's what you think. Bring in that coach from Boonville. He'll fix everything. You know, the, the, the guy at Greenwood. How about the Pulaski coach who never punts the ball? We'll be so good. Really? But again, what's real doesn't matter to us. It's what we think is real. Now, these isms are so important because these are the things that kind of reveal how we think about stuff. Have you ever been in a conversation and you're talking to someone and then all of a sudden you hear yourself say something and you go, oh, is that really what I think? Okay, <laughs> they had stopped moving. Yes, you have. <laughs> yes, you have. And you say it and you go, oh, can I just take that back? And <laughs> Yeah, just, <laughs> I didn't say that. Isms are the place where we get caught. It's the place where the things we really think about God slip out. And what's really scary about it is this. These isms, they tend to describe the way that we think about God, and it's the way that we act in life. Caveat here, okay? With these touchy subjects, I always, I always have to give the caveats. I mean this. Give each other grace, including me, okay? If I step on your toes, it's not because I think you're dumb. We have all used these isms, okay? Yes? So if you happen to still believe one that I'm going to crush, it's not because I think you're stupid. I have said, I'm pretty sure most of these. <laughs> yeah. Let's assume all of them, okay, just for the sake, okay? I'm not doing this because I think you're dumb. Trust me, some of the smartest people I know think some of the dumbest things. It's just the way it works, okay? Um, also, as we go into this stuff, it, it's very important to understand this, okay? Who understands fashion? Jake Seiniger, stand up. <laughs> Who loves fashion? Okay. Here's how the fashion world works, okay? You, you have these, these, these top-level designers, right? It, it, it's the people that, you know, you guys have no concept who they are or what the name are, but they're a big deal. They get paid lots of money. People care about them. They dress crazy. Um, fashion shows in Milan and France and Italy, okay? And there's these, these extremely high-level fashion shows, and they'll come out, and they got the models walking the, 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 the runway, and there's all these designs that you look at and go, that's just nuts. No one would ever wear that. Have you ever thought that? Like, they come out with, like, a toilet seat around their neck, and you're like, like, whoa, that's awesome. Okay, yeah. These ideas, these concepts of what looks good seem so far out, and you go like, that'll never, ever get here. What you don't understand is this. In the process of about three to five years, those crazy ideas, they trickle down. And then all of a sudden, you see them at Dillard's, and then two years later, you see them at Walmart. Okay? <laughs> Just telling you how it works, okay? Now, it might not be the exact concept, but it's a watered-down version as it trickles down. And it's these crazy psychos who, who are the ones who determine what actually looks good and what doesn't. And we all buy it. Now, that's a different discussion. I have been told for the majority of my Christian life that theology doesn't matter. All that theology stuff, that's a waste of time. All I need is my Bible and prayer. That's a waste of time, all that theology stuff. No one even cares. Those people aren't even Christian. That's what I've been told for years. What you don't realize is this. Theology is like fashion. You will never, ever 
most of you would never ever want to go to these conventions in Geneva and you know all these different places. You would not want to hear someone give a dissertation six hours long on all these crazy boring things. What you don't understand is this. These concepts at the highest level, okay, the ivory towers of theology, 20, 30, 40 years later, they begin to trickle down. They trickle down from these, these seminaries and these colleges, from these offices of these professors, and they trickle down all of a sudden to these denominations and to these higher-level leadership. They trickle down to the pastors and teachers. Then all of a sudden they trickle down to common books. And then guess what they end up being? Isms. An ism is a theological pair of Walmart pants. <laughs> That's what it is. Okay? Something that a theologian took his entire life and wrote 30,000 words to explain, a hundred years later when he's dead, turns into an ism. And most of us who say it don't know where it comes from. We have no concept that there are people who thought that was crazy and stupid. All we know is it just kind of appeared into our mind one day. We don't know where it came from. I don't know who told me that to wear tighter pants was better. I don't know why in the 90s that the pants I wore were like this big. Who wore Jinko jeans? What happened? I don't know what happened, but someone said that jeans were cool that big, and, and like now the closer you get to suffocation is better. I don't, I, I don't really know how it happened. It just appears in your life. This is the way theology works. It trickles down, and all of a sudden you think things about God, and you don't even know where they came from. Most of the things that us in this room think about God come from dead white men centuries ago. Names you've never even heard of. And if you actually heard of the other things these men thought, you would lose your mind. That's psycho. We, we believe what he believed. Yeah, that guy. Oh, oh, that guy who had this great thesis idea, but then he wanted to hunt down other believers and burn them alive? Sounds good. Yeah. Well, I thought. So that's why the work of theology is important, because somewhere at some time we have to begin to question things. Okay, when I say this ism, it sounds kind of cute, but I don't know if that, I, I don't know where that comes from, and we have to begin to kind of trace it back. Where did this come from, and is this really what we think about God? Now, one of the things that we want to start with is this. We always want to ask ourselves this. What does this ism say about who God is? What mental picture is this ism painting about God? Okay? As Christians, meaning followers of Jesus, of the Christ, one of the crucial things that we believe is that Jesus is the ultimate manifestation of God, meaning this is God coming in the most visible form we've ever seen, and he comes and says, this is what God is like. God looks like Jesus. And so as Christians, one of the first things that we have to ask in all the stuff that we see in the Bible and in isms, we have to say, does this look like Jesus? Okay. Now, are you ready for the first ism? I have to admit this. We had 93 isms. Now, well, there's actually like 200 isms you guys turned in. Can you believe that? 200. Most of them were some of the same ones, kind of worded differently. So really, there were about 93 unique, distinct isms. And I sat there staring at the screen going, what? How am I, I going to pick five of these, right? And so we, we've, we got 10, and then you guys saw Facebook that we put it out there. If you guys help me whittle it down to five. 
This was the most common one voted for by far. One in ten were the most voted for. So we're going to start with one. Here it is. Everything happens for... Have you heard this before? Absolutely. Now, if I were to sit down with you and say, where does this come from in the Bible? What would you say to me? Obviously, you don't have to say anything. <laughs> you would say, ah, I don't know, maybe this, maybe that. Let me kind of open this up first, okay? When we say this ism, we say everything happens for a reason. We're trying to say this, meaning I think the good intention is we're trying to comfort people by saying God is um, surely things that disrupt us, meaning the stuff that bothers us, like the, like the shooting we just spent time covering. Surely the things that disrupt us have meaning. Now, understand this. I think you're a bunch of good people, okay? But understand, we are all selfish. Safe to say? Even in being selfless, we are selfish. I will do more things for other people, but what's hidden under is I need to be needed. Ooh, okay. Let's look. <laughs> no amens on that one. Okay. There are some selfish motives that go into almost everything that we do. Now, again, that's okay. We just have to acknowledge it. Why do, why do I want to use this ism? <sighs> what happens if I look up and I'm surrounded by a world of blood and death and chaos and rape and disorder? What happens if I'm told that no one is in charge? That I don't have any guarantee that this isn't going to show up at my front door? What if I have no guarantee that whenever I go out to my next concert, when I come to church, when I go to the movies, that I might be the next name on the screen? What happens when my mind begins to race and my heart begins to pound and I begin to realize that I could be next? What happens? Your life is disrupted, right? You can't go on with status quo. When things begin to shake, you have to find a way to calm them down. And so the underlying motive here is we need security. Do you get that? We need security. This is not a bad desire, but we have to acknowledge where it comes from. The reason that we want to keep this ism is it helps us sleep at night. Do you get me? Even as bad as it is, we kind of wish that part of it was true. Because these things that kind of shake us to the core, what do we do about that? If God is real, if God is loving, if God is everywhere, if God is all-powerful, then why did he let this happen? And if we don't have an answer to that, then we say, well, God's in control and God has a reason, and we don't question God because God's God. So it saves me many hours of having to stress and wrestle and think and process and doubt and, and get angry and get sad. It saves me because now I can just kind of put a plastic kind of cover. I can take who has a junk drawer at their house. All of you who have a junk closet, spare bedrooms. Okay. You haven't put your garage in your, uh, your car in your garage for years? Yeah, Okay. This is what isms do. It takes all of the junk that we don't want to deal with and we just put it away so guests can, <laughs> are able to come over. Oh, yeah. This is what isms do. It's a way for us to take the hard questions that we don't have answers for and we just lock it in the closet and ignore it. 
We haven't fixed anything. We haven't made anything better. We've just found a way to get by. We've found a way to cope with it. So what we're saying here, what we're trying to say is that, you know, surely there's a meaning to these things that disrupt us, that scare us. But what we're actually saying is this, meaning someone who's on the other side listening, someone who's in the middle of pain or struggle or problem, here's what they hear. God is controlling everything that happens. God is controlling everything that happens. Now, on the surface, most of you go, yeah, amen. He does. Amen. And on a good day, that's okay for all of us. Yeah, man, today's a great day. This thing happened. You know, it's God moving it and it happened. Amen. What do you do with the shooting in Vegas? Well, see, God, see, God was trying to shoot people and to take dads away from kids um, and wives from husbands and grandfathers from grandchildren because, and you find yourself going, well, I can shove it back in the closet. Well, God has a reason. Amen. Or I can wrestle with it. See, one of the things about, about growing in Christ is we have to learn to handle tension. Meaning, how do you hold two things that tend to, to collide? We're not covering this one yet, but uh, um, who voted for the one that says, the Bible clearly says, who voted for that one? One, two, three. Oh, man. Well, you're all going to be excited when we hit that one. So many of these fall into this, okay? Let me tell you this. I want to be careful. We're treading a little bit close to, to Calvinistic ideas about salvation, meaning if someone's a Baptist or uh, Presbyterian, the concepts of salvation come from Calvin. And there's a concept about how God has already chosen them. They're already chosen to be with God. I'm not wanting to attack that right now because I believe that even in that, in the writings of Calvin, he doesn't go this far. Okay? And, and so I want to show respect for them. Um, Reformed believers tend to be some of the most serious about following Christ, and so I, I have high respect for them. But it's, it's hyper how would you put this? Taking this concept and applying it in a hyper form to all things, saying that God is a puppet master, and he sits on the world doing this. And so he's, he's got the people who are um, you know, at the concert having a great time. He's got the person in this tower who, who has this, who, all these weapons, and he's mowing them down. And it's saying somehow God is behind all of this, and surely all this comes out for God's glory somehow. How do you feel? What does this say about God? Does this look like the God we see in Jesus? Let me give you the honest answer here. I cannot argue this away completely from a scriptural standpoint. How do you like that? I can make a very compelling argument that I can tell you absolutely kicks the butt of someone who thinks that. But I cannot tell you that they have no grounds for thinking that. There are about three passages in the book of Romans and Ephesians that support this kind of concept. And you really have to kind of take it to an extreme to say it doesn't say that at all. But if you're someone who believes that God controls everything, you have problems as well. Meaning, you can't read the entire book of Hebrews. Because the entire book of Hebrews is warnings. Meaning, you need to watch out for this and you need to obey God. You need to stay faithful because you don't want to forsake God. What's the point in you having to worry or, or try at all if God is behind it all? 
That makes sense? What is the point in the book of Revelation? Why is John giving us this entire exhortation saying, stay faithful, trust God, persevere? Why does that matter if God's going to make you persevere anyway? What's with the entire concepts of kingdom that Jesus uses? The invitation to come to the wedding. And all oh, these people said they don't want to come. Well, if it's, if it's you telling them not to come, why even use this analogy? Why use the analogy of a wedding? Guess what? Who's, who here has been hitched with no choice? If you have, I'm very sorry. <laughs> I, I just said that and thought, well, they could be from other countries and cultures. I understand that. Even in this culture, there was still the concept of choice, you, which, by the way, in, in Jewish culture, divorce was rampant. And it wasn't necessarily viewed the way that we do. It, you were able to marry and divorce people and still be a Jew. So why would Jesus use the concept in all the scriptures of a bride and his groom? Why would he use that? Because, again, choice is involved. So I'm just saying, from either standpoint, if you want to believe God's behind everything, you have some issues with what I would argue is the entire narrative of Scripture. If you want to be on my side of it and understand there's a free will aspect, then I have a problem with about three passages that hit me right in the face, and I have to really work on those. When you ask adult questions, you have to get what? Adult, how do you feel so far? I wish I could tell you there's no reason whatsoever for anyone to think that, but there are a few passages that do give us that. If you guys have your Bibles, go to Romans 8.27. Romans 8.27. Here's, here's one of the key passages here. And again, I want you to, I want to say this again. The, the Calvinistic Reformed concept of salvation is something that I think has some merit, has lots of merit. I'm not attacking the things that Calvin taught. I'm attacking this application to God's involvement in all things on the earth at all times without the idea of choice. Here's one of the key passages involved. Romans 8, 27. The one who searches hearts knows, the, uh, knows how the Spirit thinks because he, he pleads for the saints, consistent with God's will. Verse 28. We know that God works all things together for good for the one who loves God. Have you heard that verse before? He works all things together for the good of the one who loves God. Now, if you read that at face value, what's that sound like? In some way, shape, or form, there are people involved in this situation in Vegas that God is working for their good what about the good of the people who don't love him? Are you seeing how on the surface level, if we just read on the surface, it begins to paint a very troublesome picture of God? The same God who we're told he didn't come to die just for the sins, uh, the sins of those who would receive him, but he came to do what? To die for the sins of the entire world. Correct? So what do we do with this? Does God care about people who won't choose him, or does he not care? There's tension there, you see? Now, if you want to understand some more about the passage, we don't have time to go into it uh, in length, but there are a few things I want to say. In 28, when it says, for those who love him, understand this is building on the um, concept from Deuteronomy, meaning this, this proven historical form of love that the Jews understood okay, which was the Shema. We've talked about Shema a lot, meaning to love God is to love God and to love your neighbor, to love God with all that is in you, okay, your, your mind, strength, heart, everything in you to love God and then to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the Shema, okay? And so the concept here is everyone who chooses to love God and then to love their neighbor, which by the way, is this God making them love their neighbor or is this someone choosing? 
Who here naturally just loves everyone around you in a pure form? Who has to try? Okay, are you seeing what's happening here? Okay. Is this, is this God making us love people, or is this the love of God, us loving God, and it, how you put that, inciting us to have to choose? Am I going to choose to love God so much that I love my neighbor, or am I not? So even in describing who God is working for, there's some nuance there. And then when it goes on, it says, and of course, he works all things for the good. I don't like going in the Greek a lot because it just sounds trite. But um, the word there, sunergo, here's what it means, to work with or alongside, meaning it's one thing to see God as, here's someone I love. I'm going to make everything good happen for them. It's another thing to see God who works alongside. Does that make sense? Who partners with? Does that make more sense to partner with? And so in the Greek, the concept is for those who choose to love God, God comes in and he partners with them and circumstances and everything on all the details that happen in events, God is working, partnering with them to turn even the worst situations into good because God is not the one who brought the evil, but even in the worst moment, God, if we partner with him, is able to pull good even from the worst situations. Are you seeing how this is different? No? Amen. This is a different concept of who God is. The, the other thing I want to mention in passing, a lot of this is from Aristotle. He's, he's the first big thinker who we who begin to talk about causality, meaning there are forces that are moving things to happen. There are dom- there's a, a first domino which falls, and it makes everything else fall. In modern-day um, sciences, mathematics, the ideas determinism, meaning everything is going one place and there's no way to change it. You have no role in the universe. Everything is just coming to one head. Theologically, there's even some concepts for this, meaning we hear that God is working through Christ to reconcile all things, right? To one head, to one point. All the cosmos and all the stars and all the beings and all the choices and all matter and gravity, God is moving somehow to bring them somewhere. So this concept is is theological. But what happens in the in-between? Is there any space for me to have any choice? If I choose to take off my shirt, was this the divine God moving through me to sovereignly bring Him glory by taking off my buttons and taking my shirt off? Or is this me being hot and stupid? (laughs) Choosing to lose 100 people from the church on one Sunday. <laughs> okay. So here's the thing. So what, what should we say? What would be a more accurate ism? And here's what we should say. Everything can have a purpose. Now, we know that there are reasons everything happens, meaning there are choices and movements and, and circumstances that go into everything. There is a reason that the shooting happened in Vegas, because someone chose to pull the trigger. Does that make sense? And obviously, there are so many things that built up to that, so many different uh, circumstances and things that had to click and happen for it to happen. There are reasons behind everything, but it doesn't mean that God is the reason behind everything. And it doesn't mean that God had a purpose to this, but everything can have a purpose. If I choose to allow God into a situation in my life and I choose to allow Him to work alongside me, even the worst situation can have a purpose. It can have meaning. Amen? And again, understand, these isms are watered-down versions. It took Calvin thousands of words to say what this ism says in just a few words. And so when you read his work, it's a lot more nuanced, a lot more detailed. And so again, I'm not trying to challenge that. All right, I want to fit a second one in real quick. Do you guys want to hit a second one? 
Everyone's like, heck no. Here we go. That happened because God is judging sin. Do you guys remember Katrina? And whenever like the, like the you know, there'd be those things that'd be on the news or on Facebook and it'd be the person on the street like, look, I found the Bible was open to this verse in Jeremiah. And he says, I will come and smite thee for thy sin. Right? <laughs> but, you know, at the same time, there wasn't any, any cameras who wanted to find the verses on like John 3.16. For God so loved the world. Oh, no, that's boring. Where's the Bible that says something really bad? Oh, we found it. Do you remember that whole concept? Well, see, God came to hit New Orleans because they're such sinners. Sinners. Christians, you shouldn't even worry. It was God just wiping out temptation. You won't even be tempted to go down and move your hips anymore. I mean, it's silly, but you heard it. Correct? And unfortunately, you heard it from people who were on these podiums. Bunch of idiots. Amen. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Um, <laughs> it's the truth. And then all of a sudden, whenever this, these hurricanes, whenever the Bahamas gets torched, just gets nailed, and you go, well, that nation one of the highest percentage of Christians in the entire world. Well, it hit Miami too, so it was hitting Miami because they're sinners. Right. Whenever bad things happen to people who we think are bad people, we go, see, they deserved it. That was God. And then when things happen to good people who we think are good people, we just shove it in the closet. So how do we deal with this? How do we, how do we understand this? First of all, I want to say this. We have no concept from Christ forward in the Scriptures of God dealing with the world in this way. And if you want to say, well, the book of Revelation, then go back and, and watch the series we did on the book of Revelation. We don't have time to go into how we should interpret the Old Testament. And we do see a God who seems to move in these ways, who seems to use kings and circumstances and, and other kingdoms, uh, you know, to, to bring judgment. And so we don't have time to go into all that but I also want to say this. In the New Testament, we do not see any form of this. What we see is a God who is willing to step into our circumstances, a God who is willing to take upon himself the judgment. Correct? We all have to sing these songs. He's our ransom. You know, in his body, he was, he was beaten and bruised for our transgressions. Was he beaten for it or was he not? Was God like, that's not enough? i got to come for you next? He's the spotless lamb because he's the only one who can take all the sins of the world. In your mind, is he or is he not? Was all of the judgment of God for sin? Was it, was it enough? Was Jesus enough or was he not? And what gets me a lot in these concepts is that it tends to be the people who argue that they have the biggest picture of who God is, who pushed the hardest for these concepts, for such a petty, small God. Oh gosh, there's places I want to go with that, but I will not. God is not petty. Jesus is not vindictive. There's nothing in him. Do you understand this? 
If he wanted to take out his rage and say, hey, look, here's how I treat people who sin. Here's how I treat people who wrong me. I wrong you back. Then why didn't Jesus lift a finger? It even says, oh, if, I, if he wanted to, I could call down all you know, the heavenly host, and we could wipe out these suckers in a second. The person who just spit on me, bam, you're gone. The person who stole my clothes, you're gone. How about the, the person who put the nail through me? How about you? Yeah, you're gone. Where is this God in Jesus? Show it to me. We have a problem because we cannot find it. And the closest thing anyone can try to do is say, well, see, look in Revelation. Oh, yeah, the book you don't understand at all. The book you read and go, I don't know if that dragon is real or not real. I don't know uh, how many heads. I, the Holy Spirit is one, but all of a sudden the Spirit is seven spirits. I don't know what to do with that. So you want to argue that one? Let's go there all day long. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm supposed to be using this. Sorry. This is my soapbox. <laughs> Bring it. Man, I'm so sorry, Zach. I... It was there the whole time. <laughs> well, see, God is, is coming, and when these things happen, so God is judging sin. So what is Sandy Hook? What is it when a, when, a, when a madman goes into a school and shoots children? Oh, okay. Well, see, when they hit that town, there's a bunch of gay people in that city that's why God's judging Miami because they got gays and their women don't wear clothes. <laughs> what about Houston where Joe Osteen lives? <laughs> One of the cities in the world that has the most churches per capita. Do you want to come at me now? I'd actually rather argue that he is judging Houston. No, <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to be careful with that. That's, that power's going to my head, I think. <laughs> Honestly, I don't even want to take the time to break down where this thinking comes through. Um, I do want to go to Luke real quick. Um, Luke 13.1. I've heard this parable referred to as one of the hardest parables to understand. Uh, I don't think it is. We're going to go into it real quick. Luke 13.1. Some who were present on that occasion told Jesus about the Galileans who Pilate had killed um, while they're offering sacrifices. Oh, we read this already, didn't we? I'm sorry. Okay, so you read it. I didn't. And so what happens here is you have this, this same thing happening. Hey, so whenever, um, whenever uh, you know, was it Pilate or Herod? Was it Pilate, Herod? Pilate, when Pilate killed those Jews and he took their blood and he mixed it with the sacrifice they're offering God, that sounds pretty vicious, by the way. Okay, so, so, when, so when this, this pagan king took your followers, your people, killed them and put their blood in with the, with the blood of animals that they're going to bring to you, was that you showing that they were sinners? That, that's what they're asking Jesus. Can you believe the guts these, that these dudes had, Right? Or just the stupidity? Okay. 
And then they go on and say, well, well, how about the time that that, that, that tower fell on all those innocent people who didn't do anything? Was that because they were sinners? And of course, his response seems very just kind of crass. And he says, well, you know, no, but, you know, if you don't repent, you're going to die too. Understand this with Jesus. Jesus is, is, is a master at taking your question and having it fall on your head. Here's what he's going to do. And so he goes on, and of course, the way Jesus always does, he loves to talk about the kingdom and stories and parables. Um, and so he says this um, in verse 6. A man owned a fig tree. By the way, a fig tree is, is often uh, symbolism for Israel. Uh, it's not just applying to him. It applies to everyone, but it's a, it's, it's a symbol that would make them go, oh. So it's like if I said, say you had a bald eagle. What's that stand for to you? Your nation, correct? Say uh, this man had a razorback. And he took it to slaughter. <laughs> right? Okay. You got it. Okay. And, and, ooh, I want to cry. Mm. Okay. So a man, uh, he owned a fig tree. He, he planted it in his vineyard. He came. He's looking for fruit on it and found none. He said to his gardener, look, I've come for fruit on this fig tree for the past three years, and I've never found any. Cut it down. Why should it continue uh, depleting the soil's nutrients. The gardener responded, Lord, give it one more year, and I will dig around it and give it fertilizer. Maybe it will produce fruit next year. If not, then you can return and cut down. Here's what's happening. He takes the question, he flips it around. He says, okay, you fig tree, okay? And again, he's saying, okay, so what about this? So what if God the Father came to me and said, hey, I've been waiting on fruit from these people, the ones who asked the question. Okay, Arnie, so what if... <laughs> If God the Father said, I've been waiting for Arnie to grow up for a while. <laughs> I have to mess with him. He's my father-in-law. He just, he just hasn't. Okay, he just hasn't been able to grow up. And so what if I just come down and just smite him? How about that? And the response is the gardener, Jesus, says, no, no, no. No, no, no. I want more time. Just let me try again. Give him another chance. Are you seeing how Jesus flips it on their head? So what if this is you? Would you want me to give you another chance, or should I have the Father come and smite you? Are you seeing how it flips? So Jesus is saying, no. Jesus is saying, the heart of God is this. The heart of God is, give me one more year. No, 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 no. Don't smite them. Don't judge them. Please just give me another chance. This is the posture of Jesus. This is what a Jesus-looking God looks like. Amen? Would you stand with me?